You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Thanks for downloading Stuff What You Tell Me. For more information about the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at the Stuff You Team. Be sure to check out our website, www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com for a reading list and show notes for today's episode. William Still was constantly engaged in illegal activity. In a sense, he was an illegal man. He was also the embodiment of the kind of contradictions over which the United States in the first half of the 19th century was beginning to tear itself apart. Still had been born in New Jersey in 1821. His father, Levin Still, was a free black man who had managed to purchase his own freedom. His mother, Sidney, was an escaped slave who long before William had been born had fled from her master in Maryland to join her free husband in New Jersey, changing her name to Charity in the process. Before her successful escape, Charity had made a first attempt to run away from her master. She took her four children, two older boys and two girls, and fled desperately into the night. They were, however, captured and returned to enslavement. A few months later, she took her chance again. She realized that with four children in tow, it was almost impossible to avoid detection. So she had to make what one assumes was the most heartbreaking decision of her life and choose which of her children she would leave behind. Women, as we discussed in our previous episode, were particularly vulnerable to the violence inflicted upon all slaves by their masters. So, Charity left with her daughters, figuring that her sons had a better chance to grow into tough men who could defend themselves. She must have considered that she might never see them again. Soon afterwards, her enraged former owner sold the two boys as revenge, and they were taken into the Deep South, this vast, inaccessible region into which slaves simply disappeared. William was the youngest of the 14 children that his mother and father had in the years following her arrival in New Jersey. According to the state's law, William was born a free man, According to Maryland law, however, he was as much a slave as his escaped mother still was, even after years of living as a free woman. Around 21 years of age, William left New Jersey and his life as a farmhand and moved to Philadelphia. In 1847, at age 26, he married a woman named Letitia George. Together they had several children, of whom four survived infancy. In the same year that he got married, he also took a job as a clerk and somewhat janitor at the Philadelphia office of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, which also had a vigilance committee dedicated to raising funds for and giving assistance to runaway slaves. He would soon prove himself a capable man 
and was shortly thereafter appointed the chairman of the Vigilance Committee. In 1850, whilst sitting at his desk in Philadelphia, Still received a man into his office who had recently bought his own freedom, but who had been unable to buy that of his wife and children. He had come to Philadelphia hoping to find his mother, from whom he had been separated a long time before, when he was still just a child. William listened ever and ever more carefully, as the man told him his story. His name was Peter, and he alongside his brother, named Levin, had been separated from their mother some 40 years before and sold on south to end up in Alabama. Although Levin had died from being whipped in 1831, Peter had survived and been able to forge a life as a fairly dutiful slave who worked as the foreman on the plantation of his owners. His owners had even tried to buy his wife, who was, along with their children, owned by a neighbour, but the offer had been refused. Peter's life changed when his owner decided to start hiring him out to earn additional income for the family. He spent nearly a decade working several different jobs with the money he earned going to his owner. By the late 1840s, he was being hired by a pair of Jewish brothers named Joseph and Isaac Friedman in the town of Tuscumbia, Alabama. After careful observation of their conversations regarding slavery, he struck up the courage to approach them with a plan to help him earn his freedom. Under Alabama law, it was extremely difficult for a slave to be emancipated. The slave owner would need to go to court to petition a judge to set his own slave free. If the owner had outstanding debts, they could be sued and the freed slave could be given to the debtor as payment. Due to the harshness of this system, it was often better for a slave to enter into a verbal contract with his owner concerning his liberation. But a verbal contract requires the slave to place a huge amount of trust in his or her owner. It was not unusual for an owner to agree to permit a slave to buy his or her freedom after earning a certain amount of money, only to take the money after it had been raised but deny that such an agreement had ever been made. This would have been a constant fear in the back of the mind of any person who was working to buy their own freedom. Peter's plan was for the Freedman brothers to buy him, and in exchange, he would work a set number of hours for them and use the rest of his time working other jobs to earn the money back, which they had paid for him. After a year of negotiating with his owner, who did not care to sell him at first, the Freedman brothers were eventually able to purchase Peter for $500. It took just over a year for Peter to earn that amount of money, and when he presented it to them, they kept their word and gave him his papers of manumission. But his wife was still not free, and therefore his children were also not. Still unable to get their freedom, and aware that his legal status in Alabama was decidedly sketchy indeed, he left for Cincinnati to find a way to raise money to purchase his family, but also to try to find the family that he had lost so long before. Going north, even as a free man, did not mean finding a paradise of liberty and equality. Abolitionist sentiment 
across the country really varied in its degrees, from people wanting to free all slaves and make them equal members of society, to others wanting to end slavery, and then send every slave, along with every other black person in America, to Africa, from all over which their ancestors had been forcibly removed and brought to America anywhere up to 300 years before. It was still dangerous to be a free black, because you could also easily, and with impunity, be caught by slave catchers, who would chain you up and take you away to the remotest regions of the country with no recourse to appeal or seek justice. One man, Solomon Northup, was a travelling musician in Washington DC in 1841 when he got drugged, kidnapped, and taken to Louisiana, where he spent the next 12 years as a slave. He was only released after his family was able to enlist the help of the governor of New York, Washington Hunt. After his release, the man who had kidnapped him, James H. Birch, was acquitted, because a black man was not allowed to testify against a white man. So it was dangerous for Peter to make his way from Alabama to Pittsburgh, even though he did so with the help of one of the freedmen's. He remembered his parents telling him as a child that they lived near the Delaware River in Maryland, and as he went about searching for his family, that was what information he had to go by. From Pittsburgh, with the help of a stranger, a friendly black man, Peter was put on a stagecoach to Philadelphia. There, he was referred to and attended by a member of the Vigilance Committee, Dr. James Bias and his wife. After getting direction from Mrs. Bias, Peter made his way to the Delaware River, hoping, one can suppose, to find some clue to unlocking his past, some shred of the family from which he'd been separated over four decades before. Unsurprisingly, he found none. Later that night, when talking of his hopelessness to the Biases, Mrs. Bias suggested that he go to the local Philadelphia office of the Anti-Slavery Society, whose records might be able to help him find the needle in a haystack that was his broken family. And so that is how Peter now came to be sitting here before William Still. In Peter's eyes, the man before him, to whom he began to tell his story, would have been a handsome, well-dressed, and seemingly educated black man listening, intently. William, however, started thinking in overdrive as he listened to this increasingly familiar story. He had to be certain, and so he adamantly asked many questions so as to get as many details as possible. Several names would have popped out at him, like Levin, the name this man's dead brother shared with William's own father. But it would have been when Peter told William of his mother, whom he was seeking, and her name, that he became truly sure. Not only had Peter's father also been named Levin, but his mother, he told William, had been named Sydney, the same name that William's mother had left behind in her slave past. William looked Peter in the eye. Suppose, he said, I should tell you, that I am your brother. No, it's not true. That's impossible. (laughs) All right. One Star Wars joke. That's all we're getting. 
Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This is the continuation of our series Abolishing the Norm on the Role of Rebellion in the Abolition of Slavery. Episode 2, Railroad Rebels. This episode is brought to you by Sandpaper. More grit than the Australian cricket team. From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel, treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing, until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world-changing or inconsequential. The characters who forge their own paths and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face and say stuff you and stuff what you tell me. This episode will focus on the Underground Railroad. Now, I understand with an Australian accent, I don't pronounce this word properly, but it's railroad, railroad. So if you hear me saying railroad, it's railroad. This was a very loosely connected, multiracial, cell-like network of anti-slavery activists coming from all classes of US society in the first half of the 19th century, during the death throw years of chattel slavery. The primary function of the Underground Railroad was to help slaves move from bondage to freedom. Importantly, the lubricant of the Underground Railroad was the sheer courage, determination and desire of slaves to be free, no matter the cost. Many escaped slaves, once settled into relative safety, would themselves act within the Underground Railroad. As Manisha Sina tells us, in her fantastic book, The Slaves' Cause, all about the rebellious diversity of the abolition movements, quote, Slave resistance, not bourgeois liberalism, lay at the heart of the abolition movement. The enslaved inspired the formation of the first Quaker-dominated abolition and manumission societies, as well as the first landmark cases that inaugurated emancipation in the Western world. The actions of slave rebels and runaways, black writers and community leaders, did not lie outside of, but shaped abolition and its goals. As most abolitionists understood, the story of abolition must begin with the struggles of the enslaved. Fugitive slaves united all factions of the movement and led abolitionists to justify revolutionary resistance to slavery. End quote. The diverse range of people involved in the Underground Railroad hid, harbored, helped, and protected thousands of fugitive slaves during their desperate flights to freedom. It was an organically and haphazardly grown network of rebels, most of them anonymous to many in their own time, let alone to the historical record of our own. These rebels, comprising settlers, runaways, the still enslaved, freed slaves, and more, somehow coalesced with enough purpose to individually and collectively risk all kinds of danger in order to achieve their singular aim, delivering those in need out of slavery. 
The functioning of the Underground Railroad is a fundamental thread woven indelibly into the fabric of United States social history. As podcasters with a particular affinity for people who stick it to the man, we bloody love what these people did and think their efforts are worth celebrating. The terminology that became a part of the Underground Railroad operations reflected the contemporary boom in locomotive technology and use during the 19th century. Routes, collaborators, and systems for getting away were all devised and established over many years. Conductors were those who would go to meet runaway slaves and help move them from stop to stop. Station masters were those who gave them respite, food, shelter, maybe a moment or two of some small ease and comfort. Word of the fugitives would be sent forward of their movement from station to station, passed by conductors and station masters to other often unknown conductors and station masters, as well as between others whose rebellion consisted only of the conveying of information within the Underground Railroad network. These people were constantly engaged in illegal activities, and by being so, They liberated tens of thousands of people. Historian and writer Fergus Borderwich, who's written a great book on the Underground Railroad called Bound for Canaan, describes the illegal activity thus, quote, It was the country's first racially integrated civil rights movement in which whites and blacks worked together for six decades before the Civil War, taking great risks together, saving tens of thousands of lives together, and ultimately succeeding together in one of the most ambitious political undertakings in American history. In an era when emancipation seemed subversive and outlandish to most Americans, the men and women of the underground defied society's standards on a daily basis, inspired by a sense of spiritual imperative, moral conviction, and, especially on the part of African-American activists, a fierce, visceral passion for freedom. End quote. It was the existence of the Underground Railroad that had allowed Peter Still to find his brother, as lucky as that occurrence may have been. He may not have been a runaway himself, but he was tended to and helped by the exact kind of various random people who formed the Underground Railroad, such as the Biases, who were connected to the Vigilance Committee. We're going to leave the story of William and Peter in a moment and return to it later on. But before we do... Here's a bit of good news about it. After 42 years, their mother, Charity, formerly Sydney, was able to lay eyes on one of her two lost sons and to grieve and begin to get closure over the fate of the other, who had perished under the whip years before. That's a remarkable thing, and the reunion must have gone some way to easing the pain she'd been carrying for so long. Peter was also tearily introduced to his eight remaining brothers and sisters. The story of the Still family is a powerful one, as it puts on full display many of the elements that made this time in US society before the Civil War so wrought with contradictions and division. To find the family from which he'd been torn, Peter had to tear himself from his own family, leaving them enslaved. Astounded by the reunion, 
From that point on, Williams still took particular care to document as much as he could from each fugitive he would come across, or who came across him. He realized how many people, just like his brother, would be seeking their families, and how vital every piece of information about individuals would be to that end. Consequently, he would end up documenting the travails of around 700 people. In 1872, he compiled them into a book with supporting letters and other documents presenting to the post-slavery United States the preservation of his people's stories. For him, it was important that his freed brethren embrace a hard-working lifestyle of ambition and endeavor before they could fully enjoy the blessings of freedom. He wrote, quote, Well-conducted shops and stores, lands acquired and good farms managed in a manner to compete with any other, valuable books produced and published on interesting and important subjects. These are some of the fruits which the race are expected to exhibit from their newly gained privileges. End quote. And how, according to Still, were they going to create those things? Well, he argued that it would be, quote, through extraordinary determination and endeavor, such as are demonstrated in hundreds of cases in the pages of this book, in the struggles of men and women to obtain their freedom, education, and property. These facts must never be lost sight of. End quote. In this episode, we will be relating stories of runaway slaves and of the people who helped them. Each of them was a rebel to a system built and sustained by the justification of human slavery. For some, though not all, of the stories herein, we can thank the diligence of William Still in compiling his book. Good bloke was William Still. Tensions over slavery had, before the Still brothers met in 1850, been brewing for well over half a century. The southern agricultural states, especially those that had been undergoing a cotton boom for the first half of the 19th century, depended heavily on slavery. How fervently they protected and defended the institution when it came under attack stemmed directly from how much it upheld the established systems of power and profit in the slave-dependent states. When slavery did come under attack, in the period from the foundation of the Republic until the outbreak of the Civil War, it was very rarely from within the upper circles of federal or state power. The US as a nation was still incredibly young. It comprised different states with different societies and cultures whose identities had, for much longer, been attached to their state, region, town or city, rather than to the new federal union. The American national identity had barely begun to enter into the social mindset across what was, with the onset of the Louisiana Purchase and the expansion westward, becoming an ever more vast and diverse country. Slavery had been an established institution in the Americas for hundreds of years before the US was conceived, and was deeply ingrained within the economic, legislative, and social structures of the Union that inherited it. Not just the South, but also the Northern manufacturing states that abided slavery and profited from Southern slave-harvested produce. 
Clearly, there had always been slaves willing to escape, risking their lives and physical well-being for freedom. Slavery itself, not just the trade in slaves, was abolished in the British Kingdom in 1833. Canada, therefore, became a whispered-about destination where one might find freedom. For a new federal system with its ingrained dependency on slavery, escaping slaves was an assault on property and a problem to be dealt with from very early on. The right to own slaves, as well as the right to recapture slaves, was therefore written into the US Constitution. 1793 saw the passing of the first Fugitive Slave Act, which protected the rights of slave owners and their proxies to hunt down runaways anywhere in the Union. This act also classified enslaved children as belonging to their mother's owner for life. It didn't matter if northern states had abolished slavery within their borders, federal law fell on the side of slave owners, who were almost universally upset at the gumption of their property, choosing not to be their property any longer. Here are the words of one angry slave owner writing to a colleague asking for assistance in recapturing his runaway slave in 1796. Quote, I am sorry to give you or anyone else trouble on such a trifling occasion, but the ingratitude of the girl, who was brought up and treated more like a child than a servant, ought not to escape with impunity if it can be avoided. End quote. The name of the bloke who wrote that was George Washington. Yep, the nominal leader of the American Revolution for Independence and Liberty, who at the time was coming to the end of his tenure as the first president of this new Republic of Freedom. The colleague to whom Washington had written for help in the matter was another high-ranking member of the government, Secretary of the Treasury, Oliver Wolcott. Washington's slave only Judge Staines, had been working in the president's house in Philadelphia as the handservant to Martha Washington. She'd fled in 1796. What would you do as a slave deciding to flee from the president's house in the late 1700s, in defiance of the forced servitude which the most powerful person in the country holds you to by law and custom? In the 1840s, so roughly 50 years later, Reverend Benjamin Chase found and interviewed Oni about her enslavement and her escape. In 1845, her story was published in a well-known abolitionist newspaper, Liberator, which had been partly founded by wealthy abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. In the article, in response to being asked how she escaped, she told Chase, quote, Whilst they were packing up to go to Virginia, I was packing to go. I didn't know where, for I knew that if I went back to Virginia, I should never get my liberty. I had friends among the colored people of Philadelphia, had my things carried there beforehand, and left Washington's house while they were eating dinner. End quote. The article continues her story then. It says, quote, She came on board a ship commanded by Captain John Bowles and bound to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. In relating it, she added, I never told his name till after he died, a few years since, lest they should punish him for bringing me away. Washington made two attempts to recover her, 
First, he sent a man by the name of Bassett to persuade her to return, but she resisted all the argument he employed for this end. He told her they would set her free when she arrived at Mount Vernon, to which she replied, I am free now, and choose to remain so. Finding all attempts to seduce her to slavery again in this manner useless, Bassett was sent once more by Washington, with orders to bring her and her infant child by force. The messenger, being acquainted with Governor, then Senator, John Langdon, then of Portsmouth, took up lodgings with him and disclosed to him the object of his mission. The good old Governor, to his honour be it spoken, must have possessed something of the spirit of modern anti-slavery. He entertained Bassett very handsomely, and in the meantime sent word to Mrs. Staines to leave town before 12 o'clock at night, which she did, retired to a place of concealment and escaped the clutches of the oppressor. Shortly after this, Washington died and said she, they never troubled me anymore after he was gone. End quote. Only gave two reasons for her escape. She wanted to be free, and she knew that when her master, the president, and his wife passed away, she would be inherited by their granddaughter, Custis. Of this prospect, the article states that she was determined never to be her slave. There are many accounts of fairly benevolent slave owners and the argument for paternalism was one espoused with ever-increasing frequency in the justification of slavery. In his commentary, Review of the Debate in the Virginia Legislature in 1831 and 1832, it's a pithy title, Thomas Dew wrote, We are all well convinced that there is nothing but the mere relations of husband and wife, parent and child, brother and sister, which produce a closer tie than the relation of master and servant. We have no hesitation in affirming that throughout the whole slave-holding country, the slaves of a good master are his warmest, most constant, and most devoted friends. End quote. He even makes a footnote, though, that, quote, there are hundreds of slaves in the southern country who will desert parents, wives or husbands, brother and sister, to follow a kind master. So strong is the tie of master and slave. End quote. Yeah. I call bullshit. Because no matter how friendly a master, they were still a master. It was freedom that was the driving force for people like Oni. And no level of benevolence could compensate for a lack of that freedom. In making her escape, only Judge Staines had depended greatly on other people, all of them strangers to her, as she had been to them. This was undoubtedly the greatest challenge for runaway slaves. You've made the decision to flee, you've come up with some sort of immediate plan of departure, so you set off into a world where you are constantly illegal and will soon be pursued. You cannot get through it alone or without speaking to anyone. Who can you trust along the way to wherever you are fleeing? Well, you would have to trust random people, strangers, and whether they would risk their own security to help you to ensure your own. 
these random people maybe would take you in. Or maybe they would not. Maybe they would take you in and then betray your confidence for the rewards being offered by vengeful slave owners trying to recover their lost property. As the years went on and abolitionists became more vigorous in their activities, those giving aid could be any diverse range of people. Some became deliberate operatives, conductors who would steal into plantations in the night to liberate slaves and help them flee north, or at least get onto the Underground Railroad. But in Oni's case, the railroad did not yet exist, and there were few, if any, voluntary agents executing daring rescues. In her case, the willingness of the ship's captain to risk his own welfare, and whose name she protected for decades thereafter, as well as the friendly governor who waylaid Washington's slave hunter, were both occurrences of great fortune upon which she and her freedom relied. These men were not necessarily a part of any sort of collective cause, even though they obviously held abolitionist or at least pro-freedom sentiments. But haphazardly and organically, without a centralised point of organisation, that collective cause was building. It is with acts of kindness, or at least non-malevolence, such as those undertaken by the captain and the governor, that the Underground Railroad came into being. It was born by random people, slaves and free blacks and coloreds, whites of all classes and professions, just random people in random places, making decisions to help people escape slavery, rather than to obey the law and turn them back into it. Over the course of 60 years, countless rebels committing countless acts of rebellion would connect to and with each other in both loose and firm ways, identified collectively by a secretive locomotive-based terminology and the common cause of helping other humans to be free. You might be thinking it odd that Washington, in the case of Oni, and while sitting in his seat of power, did not do more to recapture her. He did, of course, send a slave catcher to apprehend her, and his death in the end is what absolved her, although unknowingly, of the need to worry further about it. However, Washington resisted publicly searching for Oni, as many slave owners would have. He resisted putting word out about her escape. Because at the time, Philadelphia was the temporary capital of the new republic. Washington, D.C. was still under construction and the president had to remain mindful of public opinion. He was, after all, a politician. And the problem in Philadelphia for a politician trying to recapture a runaway slave was that Philadelphia was full of Quakers, also known as Friends. I'll be there for you. No, no, Julian, no, please. God, no. These were the far less egotistical and narcissistic Friends. The state had been founded by a Quaker, William Penn. Some of the first anti-slavery and abolitionist societies were founded in Pennsylvania, and they were chock full of Quakers. The thing about Quakers? Their core principles of kindness, goodness, openness, acceptance, and the right of each person to discover their inner light were obviously against the awful institution of slavery. This meant that most of them simply could not abide it. even if it meant defying the law. It's been estimated that Quakers made up about 2% of the population at the time, a bit fewer than 100,000. 
but they punched way above their weight when it came to exerting moral influence. It had been Quakers in the Americas and also in Europe who had been amongst the first Europeans to admonish and protest slavery. Although there were various schisms between the Friends and the American Revolutionary War had made the Atlantic a greater divide, they can still be identified as amongst the most important and influential rebels against the awful practice. In Britain, where the slave trade was abolished in 1808 and slavery itself in 1833, it was largely due to Quaker pressure that the issue came to and remained at the forefront of political debate and eventually action. In the US, as Quaker communities spread and sprouted across in this age of pioneer settlement, it laid much of the groundwork upon which the tracks of the Underground Railroad would be laid. In southern states, persecution of the Quakers drew largely from contempt for their anti-slavery positions, and in the 1820s, many Quakers removed themselves from places like South Carolina towards Indiana and Illinois, providing little sanctuaries within the vicinity of major cities like Detroit and Chicago, which for much of this period was the world's fastest growing city. If the Underground Railroad could get you to one of these places, you were almost in Canada where freedom was guaranteed. Quakers educated girls and boys equally. This gave a strength to these communities that allowed for the rise of strong and defiant women, like Elizabeth Rouse Comstock. She would move to Canada in 1854 to become an ordained minister and returned four years later to Michigan, where she operated a station on the Underground Railroad and, as a minister, espoused black and women's rights far and wide. The women's rights movement and the abolition movement became deeply intertwined, with many of the women having benefited from their Quaker education. Quaker communities, however, were not immune to the nation's division over the issue. In places like North and South Carolina, many early Quaker farms had been established in agricultural areas that had become so dependent on slavery by the 1800s. It was often a perilous line to walk, following their principles in defiance of the law and custom. In Bound for Canaan, Borderwich tells us, quote, Although North Carolina Quakers lived scattered through a society that was economically dependent on slavery, they set themselves firmly and somewhat precariously apart from it. In 1780, their representative body, the North Carolina Yearly Meeting, had made it a disownable offence for a Quaker to persist in holding slaves. Manumission was simultaneously a divine injunction and an act of personal purification, to be clear from the least stain of guilt in the blood shed on earth, and few dared lag behind in conforming to it. End quote. Many Quakers took the tactic of buying slaves so as to set them free. However, it was not nearly as easy as that, given the draconian laws in slave-owning states that made manumission an arduous ordeal, which, even if granted by law, then often left the freed slaves vulnerable to be recaptured and sold on again. Various Quaker abolitionist societies would write into their constitutions things like, quote, The command of the great father of mankind is that we do unto others 
as we would be done by, and that the human race, however varied in colour, are justly entitled to freedom. End quote. And yet, in the slave states with Quaker communities, leaders of those communities would often include slaveholders, who despite their Quaker principles, seemed to value their right to property more. The Friends knew that they walked a fine line. Their members varied between slave owners who espoused gradual emancipation to radicals who would be as active as their principles demanded, even against the law. Their members also included many who would eventually amalgamate with colonization societies, who promoted a model of emancipation that involved sending every black person back to Africa. Just because you were against slavery didn't necessarily make you not a racist, especially by today's norms. One of the leading figures in the American Colonization Society was founding father and fifth US president, James Monroe. The country of Liberia was created by the American Colonization Society as a place to send emancipated black people, and its capital, Monrovia, was named after Monroe. In 1808, the Quakers found a general solution to the problem of not being able to grant manumission to slaves in the South. They decided to buy the slaves themselves, ostensibly to protect them from the kind of brutality thousands were exposed to daily. The Friends' yearly meeting was made into a trustee of slaves that its members wished to be free. For a slave to whom this happened, they would then be hired out for labour, still be overseen by hired agents, and appointed to work for the community. The overseers and anyone hiring the slaves were expected to treat them in accordance with Quaker values. Along with buying slaves for this purpose, many slaves became the property of the Quaker communities, when individuals took the opportunity to relieve themselves of slave ownership and donated their slaves to the yearly meeting. It would be incorrect to say that all Quakers became a part of the activism of the abolition movement. While generally their principles and virtues demanded the rights of every person, and many were very active in assisting runaways, opinion within the Friends on how to end slavery reflected the divisions in the general society over the slavery question as a whole. That there were many abolitionists amongst them meant that their presence allowed for an abolitionist social narrative to start building in and around the urban centres where they settled including in the increasing frontier settlement that spread with the growing nation. These areas became focal points of the resistance, not only giving sanctuary to runaways, but raising funds and support for the communities of free blacks and coloreds that inevitably came into being, and who were the real core of the Underground Railroad and abolition movement. Furthermore, Just keeping the issue of slavery as one that remained on the table of national discussion was more than the pro-slavers wanted, and Quaker sentiment and activism went a long way towards this function. Levi Coffin, a Quaker farmer born in North Carolina in 1798, knew that slavery was abjectly despicable from the time that he was a boy. Two things happened in his youth that affected him greatly wherefrom he developed what seemed to be an already existent and instinctual sense of slavery's opprobrium. Although he'd been aware of slaves working in the community around him, when he was eight years old, he saw men chained up for the first time. When his father asked them why they were chained, 
They told them how they had been taken from their wives and children, and that the chains were to prevent them trying to escape back to them. Later, Coffin would recall how this made him feel, and how he had innumerable questions for his father. Quote, My father explained to me the meaning of slavery, and as I listened, the thought arose in my mind. How terribly we should feel if father was taken from us. End quote. The second instance was when Levi saw a runaway slave trailing a party of emigrants who had set out from the south with all of their belongings, including their slaves, for the frontier. The runaway was tracking the owners of his family, trying to stay close to them. He was soon caught, however, imprisoned, and his master sent to come and fetch him. His family would likely not have even known that he had been following them. Coffin saw the master, when he arrived, taking charge of his slave once more. They were in a blacksmith's workshop, with chains and irons being fastened to the man's neck. Coffin much later described it also. Quote, One end of the chain, riveted to the negro's neck, was made fast to the axle of his master's buggy. Then the master sprang in and drove off at a sweeping trot, compelling the slave to run at full speed or fall and be dragged by his neck. I watched them till they disappeared into the distance, and as long as I could see them, the slave was running. End quote. The empathy engendered from what he'd witnessed would not have been unique to him, and is the kind of thing that would have driven countless underground rebels to act against slavery. However, given how indelible this impression was, how deep his hatred of slavery became from such a young age, Levi had a lifetime to act against it. At 16, he was a member of a manumission society, and his family would often harbour fugitives on their farm. Along with his cousin, he would set up a short-lived Sunday school service, teaching slaves to read the Bible. That was forced to shut down by the pro-slavery establishment. The Coffin family, along with other Quakers in North Carolina, also engineered what could be considered some of the first tracks of a somewhat organised underground railroad in the South. Special coins were designed and given to fugitives to pass on to future conductors who could help them. Men, women, adults and children were all involved as a radical minority in a region upheld by slavery. Once a slave had been secured on some farmstead, holed up, and the heat on them by their pursuers had cooled down somewhat. They would be conducted on foot, or in wagons or otherwise, to the next station. When sent on foot, fugitives might be on their own. They could come to forks in the road and have no idea which direction to take. The railroad pioneers, including Levi Coffin and his family, had devised systems, such as hammering a nail into a tree on either its left or right side. Whichever side it was on would direct the runaway towards the next station on the railroad. Addison Coffin, the cousin of Levi and other active member of the early days of this railroad, wrote of these methods, quote, When a fugitive was started on the road, they were instructed into the mystery. When they came to a fork in the road, they would go to the nearest tree, put their arms around it, and rub downward. Whichever arm struck the nail, right or left, that was the road, and they walked right with no mistake. End quote. 
1824, Levi Coffin married his longtime friend, Catherine White. She would become an ardent partner in crime, in harboring fugitives with him. Like with so many women in history, even though the historical record falls so much more heavily on the side of the acts of her husband, there can be little doubt that she took risks, faced danger, and stood firm as admirably as he. Pro-slavery forces in North Carolina, however, were getting fed up with the illegal activism of Quakers and slaves and free folk working in cahoots to deny them their own property. Gradually into the 1820s, greater persecution of Quakers led to many leaving for the Northwest, a decision which Levi Coffin also made in 1826. Within a year of arriving in Newport, Indiana, he opened the first dry goods store in town. The success of this enterprise enabled Coffin to act more and more upon his principles and to provide financial, moral, and physical support to those who needed it. Here in Newport, he and his wife took in and aided numerous fugitives. This is said to have inspired many of his neighbours to assist and build a fairly reliable network which was an example of how the Underground Railroad became established. He did not avoid the retaliation of pro-slavery forces, however, his shop being boycotted and his person being attacked several times by slave catchers. This caused the need for him to remain ever vigilant, but he also remained ever committed to the cause. In 1847, he was prompted to move to Cincinnati by his abolitionist peers to take over operations of a free labor-only wholesale warehouse. Although he made some interesting inroads to demonstrating an alternative to the slave-dependent economic system, supporting farmers who did not use slaves, for instance, the venture would end after about a decade, never really managing to sustain itself. In the end, Coffin found it impossible to regularly procure free labor goods that came anywhere near matching the quality of slave-produced goods. The empathy that stuck with him from a young age, however, would lead to him becoming one of the most important figures in the Underground Railroad, eventually being granted the unofficial title of the movement's president. In Cincinnati, the house he and his wife settled in became a regular station where escaped slaves would disguise themselves as workers, servants, or even occasionally guests on their way along the railroad. It is generally agreed upon by historians that Levi and Catherine helped harbour around 2,000 fugitives prior to the outbreak of the Civil War. Women played an integral role in the Underground Railroad and the abolition movement. And it was not by any means just white Quaker women like Catherine Coffin or Elizabeth Comstock. The organization and activism of women in free black communities would join forces with the willingness of these white women who worked on the railroad as conductors or station masters, and together they would stand when the pro-slavery forces began to beat their drums. As Manisha Sinha wrote in her book, The Slave's Cause, quote, Women were abolition's most effective foot soldiers. The best answer to anti-abolitionist violence came from black and white women who marched arm in arm to shield each other from the howling mobs. Female anti-slavery societies were some of the first founded, and women abolitionists emerged as leading orators, writers, and organizers of abolition. 
African-American women played a crucial part in the rise of militant black abolitionism. Black women established a tradition of activism in the church and in social and literary organizations. Abolition nurtured women's activism. Black women were at the forefront. End quote. At the forefront, really as for to the front as any activist could possibly have gotten during this time, was Harriet Tubman. Born into slavery in Maryland in the early 1820s, as a girl, she was quite small and weakly and often sick. She was hired out, though, and always implored by her parents to learn something like weaving that would keep her in a relatively safe and comfortable position as a slave. But she never took to it and was pretty useless as a house slave. She remarkably recovered from illness a few times and eventually came to be working in the fields, where she displayed what had developed into an amazing strength. Despite her size, she had an incredible capacity to endure. She one day saw a fellow field worker flee, and she followed him, almost as if to see what would happen. The overseers also pursued, and during the ordeal, a rock or a brick was thrown at the runaway slave, which instead hit Harriet, smashing into her skull, knocking her out in an increasing puddle of blood. She would remarkably recover from this too, but it would affect her for the remainder of her life, causing her to pass out and, it is said, giving her intuitive powers beyond the realms of normality. We're not going to go too much into the amazing life of Harriet Tubman, just because there is so much out there, and for the sake of some small semblance of brevity, we thought it important to put more focus on what are probably lesser known exploits. However, there is a reason why she is so famous. She was hardcore. After escaping in 1849, she went back to retrieve her family, some of whom refused. Somewhat bitter about this, but unperturbed, she embarked upon what became a near-decade-long endeavor to free as many slaves as she could. In what are thought to have been some 13 expeditions to slave states, as an escaped slave herself, she used myriad ruses, such as the art of disguise, to go about her work delivering around 70 people to freedom. She was a commando of freedom, often going days without eating or replenishing herself, sometimes lying on her stomach in the wild, often with shivering, terrified slaves following her lead as the sound of the slave hunter's horse beats thundered around them. Once, she was on a train and she recognized a former master. According to her, although he hadn't yet seen her, she was certain he would know her, but also only as an illiterate slave. In what would have been, for anyone, no small amount of desperation and hope, she quickly picked up a newspaper before the man had seen her and began to pretend to read. Talk about guts and determination. She somehow avoided detection, but she was also always sure she would. In eight years as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, she was never caught. And as she put it, quote, never lost a passenger, end quote. When the Civil War broke out, she helped as a nurse, a cook, a scout, a spy, and then became the first woman to lead an armed expedition in the war. Harriet Tubman deserves a statue as big as that given to any slave emancipator, because she was the absolute Superstar champion of the game. Of course, 
It is impossible to know all of the characters who assisted in the collective surge of humanitarianism that was the Underground Railroad, but those like Coffin and Tubman show the lengths that people were willing to go to. So up until now, the situation was something like this. Slave owners since the 1790s have been constitutionally protected by the law in their pursuits to recover their property. A rebellious cohesion of free black communities growing naturally and providing bases of sanctuary for fugitives combined with various white abolitionists, many of whom were Quakers, and escaping slaves. Despite the law, these slaves and this diverse and multiracial abolitionist movement just constantly flouted it ever angering the slave-dependent states and the federal establishment, trying its hardest to keep everything, i.e. the Union, together. By 1850, pro-slavery lobbyists had managed to put enough pressure on the federal establishment. Slavers, it seemed, were not protected enough, and the loss of their property had to be stopped for good. On August 26th of that year, as part of what became known as the Compromise of 1850, Congress passed what is easily one of the most divisive laws in U.S. history, the Second Fugitive Slave Act. On September 18th, it came into effect. This act made the federal government responsible for returning runaway slaves to their owners, no matter where the slaves were in the Union, nor the anti-slavery state laws in the North. Citizens and free people were also required to help in the capture of slaves, if called upon, which meant that, in effect, Every person everywhere in the Union became complicit in the recapture of runaways, whether they liked it or not. As one Ohio newspaper, The Standard, put it, Now we are all slave catchers. If you were found to be helping an escaped slave, you faced six months jail time and a thousand dollar fine. Black people could be arrested just on the word of an alleged slaveholder or their proxy, did not have the right to a trial by jury, and could not testify on their own behalf. The special commissioners, who ruled over the slave cases, were paid $10 for every slave they returned to their owners, but only $5 for every person they released. Between 1850 and 1860, of 343 fugitive slaves who appeared before these special commissions, only 11 were freed. All of a sudden, as an escaped slave... You were safe nowhere in the United States, North or South. So now, more than ever before, Canada became the destination for slaves travelling on the Underground Railroad. Slave masters painted a bleak picture of Canada to try and deter slaves who might have been dreaming of fleeing there. They told them that it was a land where winter lasted for 10 months, where famine was widespread and where people had to wear clothes made of their own hair. Many slaves, however, saw through these lies or thought the risk still worth it and became more resolved than ever to escape. It is remarkable that people who lived in a country which just 80 years earlier had thrown off the yoke of the British Empire in striving for inalienable rights such as life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness were now en masse seeking a return to the land of Queen Victoria in the search for those same rights. One of the most well-known characters in the abolitionist movement and the Underground Railroad is Frederick Douglass, who himself escaped slavery and became an amazing orator, central figure, and fierce activist for equal rights. 
He was the first male to attend a women's rights convention, for instance. He also became the most photographed person in America in the 19th century, in an age that included some of the most influential people in US history. That's a pretty big deal. Worthy of an Instagram account, at least. We haven't really discussed Douglas much, and we will. He will figure much more later in our story in future episodes. But right here, he has a great quote his reaction to the Fugitive Slave Act, and it's just too good to leave out. Of this horrendous law, he wrote, quote, Woe to the poor panting fugitive! Woe to all that dare be his friends! Woe to all that refuse to help hunt him down, hold him fast, and send him back to his bloody prison house! Woe to all the just and merciful in the land! End quote. Whoa, that's a lot of woe. Too right. The disastrous consequences for the human beings caught in the machinations of the Fugitive Slave Act can be seen in the story of George McQuarrie, which is related to us later by Levi Coffin. He and three slaves escaped from a plantation in Kentucky in 1849 by stealing a skiff and rowing across the Ohio River with pieces of bark as oars. His companions continued on to Canada, but he decided to settle down in Ohio, where he soon after married a free coloured woman, began a family, and established himself as an upstanding member of the community. Soon after, however, the Fugitive Slave Act came into being. After four years, that's right, four years, when someone else in his town became aware of the fact that he was an escaped slave and discovered that there was also a $100 reward for anybody who provided information as to his whereabouts, they made contact with his former owner. As soon as his former master found him, he was arrested. This would be the first enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act in Ohio, and the special commissioner, before whom it was brought, referred the case to a Supreme Court judge, given the scale of opposition to it and that the enforcement of it now would be setting a precedent. Macquarie's lawyers argued that human rights should be more important than the laws of the land. Justice John McLean, yippee in reaching his ruling, and in spite of his awesome name, said, quote, I cannot here be governed by sympathy. I have to look to the law and be governed by the law and to guard myself with more than usual caution in such a case when judgment might be warped by sympathy. This is not a case for sympathy. The evidence certainly is complete that the fugitive had a kind master. Of this matter, we on the north bank of the Ohio River have no concern. The law has been enacted by the highest power, that none is higher, is acknowledged by all men. Sooner or later, a disregard for the law would bring chaos, anarchy, and widespread ruin. The law must be enforced. Let those who think differently go to the people who make the laws. I cannot turn aside from the sacred duties of my office to regard aught but the law. By the force of all the testimony and the law, I am bound to remand the fugitive to his master. End quote. And so, it is in the context of this absolute drama going around the issue of slavery nationwide, that William still met his brother, and from then determined to write down the stories of the fugitives who came by his office on their flights northward. The contents 
irrefutable evidence of the crimes that were being committed was so dangerous to him and everybody whose information was in them that he stored them in the crypt of a nearby cemetery every night. Nevertheless, he knew the importance of keeping these almost unbelievable stories of each slave's actions in the face of overwhelming odds against them. These stories were written against the establishment's wishes. William still wanted them to be known. And who would we, at Stuff What You Tell Me Be, to deny him that? So let's tell some of them. There was no way to know if his daring plan was going to work. It was March 1849, and Henry Brown, a slave in Richmond, Virginia, had decided to escape. Like pretty much all slaves, all his life, Henry would have seen that men, women, adults, teenagers, children, friends, and family were all liable to be put up and sold off at auction, merely at their owner's whim. Sometimes those being sold would know for a long time beforehand what was coming. Sometimes the act would be a total surprise. Henry would have known that he and his family were as subject to this as every other slave. He was a skilled tobacco worker who had worked hard for years to try and buy his own as well as his wife Nancy and their children's freedom. They were owned by a neighbouring master. But he hadn't earned enough in time. So now his wife and children had been sold away from him. He had watched as they were chained up alongside 300 others and force marched away. After months of grieving and considering what he could do, the idea of escape and freedom was what remained with him. Like for any fugitive, the decision to escape carried frightful unknowns. All of his life, fellow slaves would have been disappearing suddenly, having fled in the night by some means, often starting off by running through whatever terrain surrounded their world of imprisonment. Some would have returned, likely having been caught by slave catchers after days or weeks or months and sometimes years. But some returned by themselves, overwhelmed by the obstacles they'd encountered in their now desperate life of a terrified animal being hunted across the country, with no place they could go that could be thought safe or friendly to them. The folkloric directive among slaves for anyone considering escape was to follow the North Star. If you keep going north, it was known, you would get to Canada and freedom. Finding the North Star, however, and being able to keep it in view while stumbling and crawling through forests or mangroves, over rivers and through rain, snow, sleet and cold, or worse, was likely something not conveyed in the hushed plans of freedom that slaves whispered in the darkness of their encampments at night. Henry Brown chose a different means, the mere desperate flight in the darkness of night. Brown had a friend who was a free black named James Smith, who was then acquainted with and introduced Henry to a white merchant of the same common name, Samuel Smith, of no relation but with whom Brown started occasional and friendly interactions. It was dangerous or antagonistic for anyone, no matter their creed, to espouse abolitionist ideas throughout much of the country in the 1840s. Sam Smith betrayed his sentiments to Brown by suggesting that his skills as a tobacco worker might flourish better were he a free man. 
When Brown finally confided in Smith that he intended to escape, Smith agreed to help him. In return for a payment, of course. Brown was willing to pay half of what he had, which amounted to $86. But first, they needed a plan. The plan came to Henry like a revelation from above. Quote, The idea suddenly flashed across my mind of shutting myself up in a box and getting myself conveyed as dry goods to a free state. End quote. A carpenter was hired to construct a crate to Brown's specific instructions and dimensions. Two feet, eight inches, about 80 centimetres deep. Two feet, or 60 centimetres wide. And three feet, about 90 centimetres long. It was lined with bays, a coarse woolen material. Smith wrote to an acquaintance in Philadelphia, Passmore Williamson, a Quaker abolitionist, telling him to expect a delivery. When Brown stepped into the box... It was in the presence of the two Smiths, two free men who were willing to break the law in order to pursue the right of freedom for an enslaved one. Brown had bored three holes into the crate in front of where his face would be to allow him to breathe. A gourd of water to drink and keep his face wet was provided, and nothing else. Once in the box where he would spend the following 27 hours, The two smiths fastened hoops around it, secured the lid, and nailed it shut. The words, this side up, had been inscribed appropriately on its side, and they must have all hoped that they would be diligently followed. By the Postal Service. The address for the receiver in Philadelphia was attached, and Henry Brown's escape attempt had begun. It only took as far as the first stop, the express office in Richmond, for the words on the side to be completely ignored. From that point on, the journey would offer no respite from unease, discomfort, pain, and fear that he would not survive. Quote, I had no sooner arrived at the office than I was turned heels up. I was then put upon a wagon and driven off to the depot with my head down, and I had no sooner arrived at the depot than the man who drove the wagon tumbled me roughly into the baggage car where, however, I happened to fall on my right side. The next place we arrived at was Potomac Creek, where the baggage had to be removed from the cars to be put on board the steamer, where I was again placed with my head down, and in this dreadful position had to remain for nearly an hour and a half, which, from the sufferings I had thus to endure, seemed like an age to me. I felt my eyes swelling as if they would burst from their sockets, I felt a cold sweat coming over me, which seemed to be a warning that death was about to terminate my earthly miseries. But as I feared even that, less than slavery, I resolved to submit to the will of God. I could hear a man saying to another that he had travelled a long way and had been standing there two hours, and he would like to get somewhat to sit down. So perceiving my box, standing on end, he threw it down and then the two sat upon it. I was thus relieved from my state of agony. End quote. For the member of the Vigilance Committee, the conductor of the Underground Railroad who Smith had recruited to collect the box that held Henry Brown, there would have been so much uncertainty as he made his way to the depot. Had the man survived? Would the suspicions of those at the depot be aroused? Maybe they were pro-slavery and would report the crime. 
The box had not arrived, however, when expected, when the first conductor went to pick it up. However, a message came through that it would arrive the following morning. While inside it, Henry Brown just continued to try and bear it all. Imagine how you would feel, a fugitive locked in a box, being tossed around, sometimes upside down, never once being able to make any noise for fear of capture. The Vigilance Committee wanted to attract as little attention as possible to the box, so as not to raise the suspicions of the authorities. A merchant who dealt often with the express office was then recruited to make inquiries and to send one of his men, an Irishman named Dan, to collect it and bring it straight to the anti-slavery office. This plan worked, and when the box had finally arrived, there were four men who stood around it. One of them was William Still, who tells us about the moment. Quote, All was quiet. The door had been safely locked. The proceedings commenced. Mr. McKim rapped quietly on the lid of the box and called out, All right. Instantly came the answer from within. All right, sir. The witnesses will never forget that moment. Saw and Hatchet quickly had the five hickory hoops cut and the lid off and the marvellous resurrection of Brown ensued. Rising up in his box, he reached out his hand, saying, How do you do, gentlemen? The little assemblage hardly knew what to think or do at the moment. He was about as wet as if he had come up out of the Delaware. Very soon he remarked that, before leaving Richmond, he had selected for his arrival hymn, if he lived, the psalm beginning with these words, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my prayer. And most touchingly did he sing the psalm, much to his own relief, as well as to the delight of his small audience. End quote. Henry Brown had engineered an amazing and daring escape. He would thereafter become active on the speaking circuit, and his story became known around the nation. A year later, however, the Second Fugitive Slave Act forced him to flee for England in fear of being recaptured. Being one of the most famous escaped slaves in the nation was dangerous. Another story related in William Still's notes is that of Harry Grimes. Harry, around 46 by the time he escaped, had been born into slavery in North Carolina and sold various times, during which he was separated from his wife and children and ended up being owned by a man named Jesse Moore. Moore was, according to Grimes, a, quote, Right red-looking man, big-bellied old fellow, weighs about 240 pounds, he drinks hard, he is just like a rattlesnake, just as cross and crabbed when he speaks, seems like he could go through you, end quote. One of Harry's fellow slaves, named Richmond, had run away after being whipped for not plowing some corn well enough. When Richmond was eventually caught, Moore gave him a hundred lashes, split his feet to the bone, and then stabbed him multiple times before locking him in a barn. Remarkably, Richmond survived, and after he eventually recovered, he was just put back to work. Having witnessed the terrible cruelty of his master, Harry would have been understandably terrified when one day, Moore approached him whilst he was working. Reeking of alcohol, Moore asked, How come there was no more work done that day? When Harry told him he had been working, more threateningly repeated the question. Massa, I don't know what to say, Harry said, at which point Moore pulled out a knife 
and plunged it into his neck. Harry staggered back from this violent attack before being forced to his cabin with his master behind him. Moore grabbed his shotgun and ordered the overseer to grab some ropes. Having seen his friend Richmond be cut to pieces by Moore, Harry begged him that he'd rather be shot than tied up and flayed. Moore thundered, Go! At which point Harry ran out of the room. Moore snapped his shotgun barrel into position and set his dogs on him. Try to imagine yourself in this position, bleeding from your neck, running through a forest like a rabbit, being chased by dogs and a drunken psychopath with a shotgun hunting you down. It's like Ramsay Bolton from Game of Thrones, only very real. It would have been terrifying. Luckily for him, however, Harry was a much nicer guy than his master. He had always been kind to the dogs and had often fed them, so they actually refused to chase him. Moore and the overseer grabbed some horses and went after him into the forest, but they were unable to find him. In his rage, he flogged four other slaves and declared that if he could find Harry, he would tie him to a tree and empty the shotgun into him. Harry was now a fugitive slave, alone in the marshy Carolinian wilderness. Harry must have been a resourceful man, however, because he was able to survive in the swamp for seven months, eating only what he could scavenge and living in the hollow of a poplar tree. He suffered greatly from the elements, with no shortage of challenges. At one point, a moccasin snake tried to enter into his little treehouse. He called it the poisonous kind of snake we have. He was forced to chop it in two. The entire time he was hiding, his thoughts were only on how to get to a free country. Eventually, he managed to come into contact with the saltwater underground captain named Fountain, who would bring him to Philadelphia and put him in touch with William Still. He was practically naked, and his most valuable and indeed only possessions were his memories of his long-lost wife and eight children. As has probably become clear, one of the basic common threads running through the stories of the Underground Railroad is that people were either trying to be reunited with their families or had been torn away from them, so now had nothing left to lose. This theme continues in another story about a girl named Maria Weems, who escaped when she was just 15 years old. Her father was a free man of colour, her mother was a slave, and we all know that that means that's why she was a slave too. After learning that their family was to be broken up and sold off to the Deep South, her parents began to work closely with Quaker abolitionists to start a ransom fund to buy them out of bondage. Despite being offered $700 from Maria, her owner, a man named Charles Price, refused to sell. After rejecting this offer multiple times, Price began to worry that Maria might try to escape. He became so paranoid about this prospect that he made her sleep beside he and his wife's bed so that he could always keep an eye on her. In October of 1855, however, she was able to make her escape. She fled 15 miles to Washington, D.C., where she was able to be reunited with some of her family. But due to the $500 bounty on her head, she was taken to the house of their family's lawyer, Jacob Bigelow. Bigelow was a Quaker, whose home was a station on the Underground Railroad. And there she stayed for six weeks, waiting for the storm around her to die down and for the right moment to put the final escape plan into action. One night, in November of 1855, the Bigelow family doctor, Elwood Harvey, 
pulled up with his carriage in front of the White House. Yes, the White House. That White House. And walked into the passenger compartment at the back. Out of the shadows, his coachman, one Joe Wright, that's quotation marks there, walked up, took his position on top, and calmly rode the carriage away from the White House and out of D.C. towards Philadelphia. Joe Wright was, of course, Maria Weems, dressed up as a coachman. Together, she and Elwood Harvey kept up this charade for a few days before arriving at the home of William Still, where everybody was astonished at her disguise. Some couldn't actually believe that she wasn't a boy, even after learning the truth. Maria eventually travelled all the way to Canada, where she settled. We can't help but imagine that she must have given a sneaky middle finger to that symbol of establishment power, the White House, when she departed on her journey to freedom. What a champion. It's uncertain how many slaves escaped through the 60-something years of the Underground Railroad. Most estimates lie between 25 and 40,000, with the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center putting it as high as 100,000. Other statistics suggest, however, that the endeavor was not as successful as we might today like to believe. In 1850, there was an estimated free black population of 435,000. Ten years later, following some of the most prolific and advanced underground railroad activity, this was put at 490,000, over half of whom lived in the South. Given that natural increase definitely happened, an increase of 65,000 would suggest the successful escapes were not nearly as numerous as the upper estimates suggest. Regardless, there is no doubt that thousands of lives were saved that otherwise would not have been, and it was due to the lengths that law-breaking rebels, which included the slaves themselves, were willing to go to. So now that we've heard some of the stories that William still documented, let's go back to his own, and that of his brother, Peter who had left his family behind in the South, pursued his long-lost family, and was now going to do everything he could to secure his wife and children's freedom. As he told it to someone, quote, I would as soon go out of the world as not to go back and do all I can for them. End quote. Against his family in Philadelphia's entreaties not to, Peter returned to Alabama, this was a massive risk given that he had basically no rights, even as a free man. He had to pretend to be a slave for hire and secretly met with his wife and children, telling them to prepare for some kind of escape attempt. His wife, Vina, gave him a gingham cloak that he might pass on to any rescuer so that she would immediately recognize it and know when the escape was happening. Peter's story telling of his being separated from his mother in childhood and being sold off into the deep south about his successful endeavor to buy his own freedom with the aid of the Freedman brothers and how he had made his way to Philadelphia, whereby some incredible fortune he had been interviewed by his unknown brother and somehow become reunited with his mother, that story had all been published in the Pennsylvania Freeman, one of the many anti-slavery newspapers being published around the country. A copy of this was picked up and read by another astonishing man, a white abolitionist, about 48 years old, called Seth Conklin. Born in New York in 1802, Seth Conklin had come from humble beginnings. 
His mother had been a teacher and his father a mechanic until his death, when Seth, the oldest of five children, was just 15. From this young age, Seth became used to carrying the burden of others' welfare on his own shoulders. He had joined the army, but was released to look after his siblings when his mother soon passed away. It was in Shaker communities. Shakers being a type of Christian millenarian sect, faithful of Christ's second coming and the great changes to be wrought across the society. It was here that Conklin found refuge for he and his siblings. Shakers put a major emphasis on equality between the sexes and also celibacy. Conklin found his siblings places to live, but always in poverty. He did what he could to earn what he could, but it never amounted to much. There is little doubt that the struggle of his life molded his approach to abolitionism. Author of Bound for Canaan, Borderwich, tells us that this was, quote, an appallingly grim childhood that left him with the cocky combativeness of a perpetual survivor, coupled to an indelible affinity for every underdog he ever met. End quote. It's thought that he became an active abolitionist somewhere around 1830. Indeed, his only known words, besides letters that he would later write to William Still, are in a letter that he wrote to his sister, warning her of the inherent racism within the colonization movement. Before he met William Still, Conklin had been a kind of rogue abolitionist mercenary, never caring for a dime, acting on his own volition to help slaves escape, and to do things like expose and threaten those who would betray a slave's confidence. William Stills tells us of how, after reading about Peter's story in the newspaper, Conklin came into the two brothers' lives. Quote, Seth Conklin was naturally too singularly sympathetic and humane not to feel now for Peter, and especially for his wife and children left in bonds as bound with them. Hence, as Seth was a man who seemed wholly insensible to fear and to know no other law of humanity and right than whenever the claims of the suffering and the wronged appealed to him to respond unreservedly whether those thus injured were amongst his nearest kin or the greatest strangers. It mattered not to what race or clime they might belong. He, in the spirit of the Good Samaritan, owning all such as his neighbours, volunteered his services without pay or reward to go and rescue the wife and three children of Peter Still. End quote. When Peter returned to Philadelphia again, somewhat dismayed at his being unable to free his family, he was met with the news that this stranger was going to burden the risk required to rescue and deliver them to him in freedom. At first, he was totally uneasy with Conklin's plan, which was to pose as a slaver and locate Vina and the kids, before sneaking them out of Alabama and towards the Ohio River. Peter thought it was too dangerous, but eventually was convinced. Together the two men sat, and Peter gave Conklin as much detailed information about the region of Alabama to which he was headed, and about the plantation on which Peter's family was enslaved. Conklin set off, and went first to Cincinnati, where he stayed with the so-called president of the Underground Railroad, Levi Coffin himself, who was managing the free labor warehouse there, and whose house had already become a well-established station on the railroad. Basing himself at the Coffin home, Conklin first spent time scouting the north bank of the Ohio River for a suitable and safe landing spot where he could bring Peter's family once he'd gotten them out of Alabama. 
He was not yet 100% sure of his whole plan, but it would certainly involve crossing the Ohio River to freedom. With the Fugitive Slave Act being in full force, nowhere was truly safe. It was all about degrees of relative safety. Eventually, Conklin was not satisfied with any nearby location and determined that he would have to bring the family all the way up into Indiana in order to get them anywhere near the Underground Railroad. In early 1851, he made his way up the Tennessee River towards Florence, Alabama, where Peter's family were. Posing as a man named Miller, he set about looking as though he was seeking work. He made inquiries and surreptitiously got in contact with someone who could put him in contact with Vina, Peter's wife. Let's try to now put ourselves in the shoes of Vina, an enslaved mother so constantly vigilant of making decisions to best ensure the safety of your children in a system that cares not for their safety at all. Your husband, having bought his own freedom, left to seek out his own lost family, and then months later returned, adamant that he was going to secure your freedom. Failing this, you give him a specific cloak, in the vain hopes that you will see it again, one day, probably held by some stranger, if one could be found who was willing to risk their own safety to help you and your children escape. The dangers within any such plan, should it ever happen, are immense. Every night, any foreign sounds you hear must be full of both terror and hope. And then one day, word comes that a stranger wants to meet you. Quietly and hoping not to arouse suspicion, you go. When you see the gingham cloak in the man's hand, you know that there is no time to linger on this prospect any longer. You decide you are going to place your and your children's lives in the hands of this white stranger. Conklin arranged for a large skiff with which they would row out of Alabama and towards Mississippi, then back in towards Tennessee and finally out towards the Ohio River, and hopefully freedom. He gave Vina the meeting point information, and on the arranged night, she and her children, two older boys and a younger daughter, all slipped away to go and meet their rescuer. Conklin and the two boys rowed for 51 hours until they reached the Ohio River. The tension would never have ceased. As any other boat posed a threat, Conklin, in such occurrences, would pose as a slaver with the two boys rowing. Vina and her daughter would huddle in the bottom of the boat under blankets. Twice they seemed in trouble. Once men shot in the air to get their attention from the riverbank and another time some white men approached but then backed off when they realized Conklin was likely the slave's owner. Making it to the Ohio River was nowhere near the difficult part. Having been going up until now downstream, they now had to row against the current. It was another five days before they reached New Harmony, Indiana, where they could finally get off the boat. They would have been freezing, hungry, in perpetual trauma and fear. But Conklin was there for them, and he arranged for new clothes of the kinds that free blacks would typically wear. They travelled on and by nightfall had reached the station on the underground, at the home of a free black man, Charles Greer. Here they received shelter and food and a night's rest, not cramped on a little rowboat. The following day another conductor collected them and took them on to his own home, where they could rest another day. At some stage they met Reverend Johnston, an associate of Levi Coffin, and then they set out again towards another station, which they would have reached after about a day's walking. 
For some reason, it was here that Conklin had decided that they were far enough away from the Ohio River that they could risk traveling by daytime. This proved to be a major error, given their vicinity to the town of Vincennes, which was notorious for its pro-slavery status. As they walked, Conklin traveled behind the family by a short distance, always keeping them in view. But he could not prevent a group of white men catching sight of Vina and her children and approaching them aggressively. Conklin quickly ran up to try to stop what was about to happen. Despite his amazing commando-like ability to get the family as far as he had, Conklin was obviously not very good at an improvised charade. At first he said that the slaves were his, but then contradicted himself, saying that he was accompanying them and that his brother had just emancipated them in Kentucky. Poor Seth Conklin and the poor family of Peter Still were about to face the real-life effects of the Fugitive Slave Act. The white men were not convinced and quickly rounded up Vina and her children and put them in a wagon, taking them back to Vincennes. They had tried to apprehend Conklin, but had deferred on account of his being a white man, so he followed them towards Vincennes, which they would reach the following day. That night, Conklin broke into the wagon and attempted to release his charges, but was caught in the act by the slave catchers, with a revolver pointed straight at him. He was forced to leave them. Once in town, Vina and the children were put in jail to await the suspected arrival of evidence that they were fugitive slaves. Conklin, again under the guise of the name Miller, is said to have visited them every day and procured a lawyer to produce a writ of habeas corpus to the judge, arguing that they were his property. The judge refused his claim, and Peter Still's family remained imprisoned. Soon after, the evidence came that their owner had offered a reward for the return of slaves matching their descriptions. A reward was also offered for the arrest of the thief who had stolen them. On this basis, Conklin was then also arrested. When the owner arrived and Vina confessed that they were his slaves, they were all passed over to him, Conklin included, without any sort of trial or hearing. The owner, a sheriff, and another agent all hurried their captives to be loaded onto a steamboat and returned to Alabama to seek justice as slaves and a criminal. The owner, McKinnon, would tell Conklin that even if it cost him a fortune, he would ensure that he was hung in Alabama. Conklin showed no remorse, regret, or sense that his actions had not been in the right. His conscience was clear. During the entire ordeal of the Still and Conklin runaway party, major members of the Underground Railroad like William Still and Levi Coffin were engaged in trying to stay up to date, letter being written after letter and exchanged furiously amidst the network. After the party had met Reverend Johnson, they were supposed to reach the next railroad station, but had never made it. To those following their progress, it was here that they disappeared. Until this article appeared in the Philadelphia Ledger, a daily newspaper, on the 9th of April. Quote, Runaway Negroes caught. At Vincennes, Indiana, on Saturday last, a white man and four Negroes were arrested. The Negroes belonged to B. McKinnon of South Florence, Alabama, and the man who was running them off calls himself John H. Miller. The prisoners were taken charge of by the Marshal of Evansville. End quote. Levi Coffin wrote to William Still once he had found out about Peter Sill's family's recapture, and Conklin's too. Quote, 
Language would fail to express my feelings. The intense and deep anxiety I felt about them for weeks before I heard of their capture in Indiana, and then it seemed too much to bear. Oh, my heart almost bleeds when I think of it. The hopes of the dear family, all blasted by the wretched bloodhounds in human shape. And poor Seth, after all his toil and dangerous, shrewd and wise management and almost unheard of adventures, the many narrow and almost miraculous escapes, then to be given up to Indianians, to these fiendish tyrants, to be sacrificed. Oh, shame, shame. My heart aches. My eyes fill with tears. I cannot write more. End quote. He then goes on to write a bunch more, but don't let that take away from how invested the members of the Underground Railroad have become by the time the Fugitive Slave Act was bearing down on them and all runaways. They cared deeply, deeply enough to flout the law in preference to their principles and beliefs that slavery as an institution was the rotting core of the nation. For one night on its journey, the steamboat that carried Vina and her children back into slavery and Conklin towards pro-slavery justice docked at the mouth of the Cumberland River. No one will ever know exactly what happened, as reports vary, except that the next morning, the body of Seth Conklin was pulled out of the river. He was still in chains, and his head had been bashed in. Reports would be made that he had attempted to jump onto a passing barge and by doing so, fell into the murderous waters below. Levi Coffin expressed his firm belief that it wasn't the waters that were murderous. Seth Conklin's sacrifice wasn't in vain, however. Fergus Borderwich writes, quote, In a curious way, Conklin's death helped free Peter's family after all. Though less well-remembered, the apparent murder of Seth Conklin became one of the most widely discussed events of that tumultuous and pivotal year. For many months thereafter, Peter travelled profitably among abolitionist gatherings, telling the story of his enslavement and Conklin's martyrdom, and appealing for donations to buy his family out of slavery. End quote. In 1855, Peter Still was finally able to buy his family's freedom. Seth Conklin's death is a demonstration of the violence that was becoming more and more prevalent in the United States as the opposing sides in the issue of slavery started to dig themselves more firmly into position and become more active towards their causes. In this episode, we have focused on the actions of people at a grassroots level rebelling against the establishment of a system that denied liberty to so many. These stories which we have told are just a tiny fraction themselves only a few survivors compared to all those stories which have been lost to history. Looked at in isolation, the acts undertaken by the people involved in the Underground Railroad are amazing, but by themselves, they wouldn't have necessarily changed the entire society and country. However, the functioning of the Underground Railroad as this organic, radical and rebellious grassroots, multiracial form of cooperation lubricated the gears of a social narrative that would set massive changes into motion. It took these ordinary people doing these extraordinary things for systematic change to begin. So here we are in the 1850s. The United States was growing fast, a 
and new territories were opening up for settlement. Given that the society in general was already so divided over the question of slavery, there was no way these new territories were going to escape the violence that had already begun to rear its ugly head. One of these new territories, Kansas, was about to start bleeding. And it is towards that bloodshed that we shall march in the next episode of Stuff What You Tell Me. Thanks so much for listening to what was undoubtedly the longest, most epic episode we've ever made. We hope that you had a few moments to sit down, take a break. Perhaps someone brought you a snack in between. A bit jealous. Uh, massive thanks go out to all of you. Everyone, thank you. I could shout out random names and hope that they apply to each and every one of you, but you know who you are. Um, what we'd like to ask is that you go out and tell people about us. No, look, go and tell one person, each of you out there. Walk up to one person, whether they're... you. Friends, family, straight go up to a stranger and just shout the name of our podcast in their face, but, but not in a way that will make them want to listen to us. Um, go and tell your grandma. Go and tell your dog. Not your dog. Don't tell your dog. Uh, tell your dog's best friend's owner. Um, to just tell people about us. Stuff what you tell me. This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani, part of the Recorded History Podcast Network.